Well, I think it's time to start. It's 3 o'clock p.m. And it's a great honor and a privilege, and I really look forward to this day to see here Get Piesta, Lucas Cohn, and myself. We are going to give three presentations. So the question, is there a point to education in the first place? And like we normally do, uh, we start and go on with three presentations in a row. Then there'll be a little break with coffee and tea and refreshments. And then we go on with an open discussion. The floor is yours. And we will also kind of irritate one another, I guess, or <laughs> at least give each other little friendly comments. And uh, so without further ado, it must be Gert's time now to present his stuff. And we have look forward to this day. OK, good. Hello. Um, <clears throat> Do you know that I can keep it in my hand? That's fine. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming and thanks for the invitation to be part of this uh, twist, which is very special. And I enjoyed when I saw the, the history of the previous twist. So it's, it's an honor to become part of that uh, history. Um, we each have 20 minutes to save the world, so that's not a lot, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best to stick to that and, and put some things on the table. It looks a bit like it's going to be a court case because there are many exhibits already lying there, so, so we'll see what, uh, what happens, and I made a little PowerPoint to keep myself focused. So there is a very concrete question, is there a point to education in the first place? And my answer must be yes. Um, because I'm an educator, I studied education, I practice education, um, and if I would think that there was no point in education, I would have to stop immediately, which uh, I haven't done so far. I think part of our, our conversation and also what I, I was going to talk about has to do with language because we are talking across different languages and different languages allow us to speak differently and there is a, a problem with the English language. So when I say, yes, there is a point to education, I mean education always as a verb, as something we do. So education for me is educating uh, and that is a form of action. Uh, you can say it's a form of intentional action because as educators we have certain intentions but out of those intentions we can also decide not to do anything so intentional non-action is also part of what education is so for me the word education is not some kind of a morph process but it it comes back to what educators do then of course there is the question what then is at stake in education and what i want to play with a little is to say that the, the question where it all starts is this question, what shall we do with the children? And then there are all kinds of other questions, how can we best speak about it, how can we get into history, theory, and so on. This way of formulating the educational question is, is not original. Uh, Schleiermacher, for example, puts it in this way by saying, Education is the response of the current generation to the arrival of the, the new generation. I think he uses the, the phrase, the fact of development. With Hannah Arendt, you can say education is the response to the fact of natality, the fact that uh, children are born in the world, students step into classrooms, and there is constantly a, a moment of new beginning. Um, but we should be very careful in referring to facts because the, the facts we find, even the facts in nature, are always read in a particular way. I came across a very nice quote in a book from Werner Jaeger on Paideia, uh, which is from 1932, and there he says, there is a democratic and an aristocratic reading of human nature, and a lot in where we end up in education depends on how we actually read human nature. Um, so what shall we do with the children? To phrase the question in that way already assumes a lot. It assumes the presence of a certain we, and there are important questions about who are the we in this question. 
And the question also assumes children. And again, the question is, who are the children in this setup? And if I had more time, I would also have gone into the whole question, uh, not just to say, well, there are children out there and we educate them. There is also the big question of, you can say, our, our inner child-likeness or our inner infantility and what we do with that. And I think that actually is also a big problem in contemporary education somewhere in the background. Now, some people may not like this question intuitively because it's quite a presumptuous question that already, already says, we are here, the children are there, what shall we do with them? Um, but this has something to do with the complexities, I think, of, of education. One interesting complexity is that children never ask for education. So we shouldn't forget that as educators, we always come uninvited in the life of the child or the life of the student. Um, so you could say that education starts by being unwanted, uh, which may also mean it, it starts by being unwarranted. And in that difficult position, we find ourselves as educators. That can only mean that education always begins as an act of power. Um, the, the hope we may have as educators is that at, at some point that power becomes authorized by our students, where they say, that was pretty irritating what you asked there from me, but looking back a week later, five years later, a lifetime later, it actually was something very significant. And then suddenly the, the power becomes a relationship of authority. But that's always open. Um, this has nothing to do with contemporary talk, I say here. This morning I had their contemporary waffle about meeting the needs of the learner, where we say, oh, we are just serving learners and their needs and power has nothing to do here. Uh, I think those kind of phrases that are very popular, they just hide the, the power complexities of what we're doing there. Um, also, the idea that we should be giving students what they want is another idea that has nothing to do with education. If they know what they want, then they should just get it and they should not go to school. So what shall we do with the children? Um, there are quite a number of different answers to this question. I just want to highlight a few because I think they are still somewhere in the horizon of, of contemporary education. So there is an answer in, in ancient Greece that uh, education is about giving free men, the ones who already have freedom, the time and resources to cultivate themselves to become even more perfect. Maybe in the Middle Ages somewhere there was the idea that what we should do with the children is make sure that we save their soul for eternal life in heaven. Uh, and this heaven is still there nowadays. I think a very important contribution from the Reformation was the idea that education has something to do in making sure that everyone can read, first of all the Bible, but once you can read then there are other books on the shelf. The enlightenment motive of saying what we should do with the children is encourage them to think for themselves. And maybe towards the 19th century in our parts of the world, the, the first thing in what we do with the children is to provide equal opportunities for all of them. So I think that these are quite important parts of the answers that over time people have given to this question. When we then end up in 2019, it is not that profound. We hear that what we should do with the children is make sure they score high in PISA, be, that our country becomes as good as Finland or even better, that schools should become excellent, that there is only one place to go for and that's the top place in the league table and so on. With this, I'm just highlighting the poverty of uh, contemporary discourse about education. 
One thing that I think we now know, but all this is in quotation marks because we can ask questions about all of this, is that everything in our answer to the question what we shall do with the children depends on whether we see the child as object or subject and whether we approach the child as object or as subject. Um, why do we know that now? I tend to think that this is at least Rousseau's insight. Um, I recently had the opportunity to read the Emile again with, with colleagues. Um, and what comes out of that book is sort of a, a double task for education. One part of the story is, is well known, that Rousseau is saying education has a, has a task in, in keeping society a bit at a distance so that the child is not sort of overruled and, and completely determined by influences from the outside. But the other theme is that Rousseau also writes a lot about uh, the relationship between ourselves and all the passions that sort of come from the inside, which can also overrule us. So the work of education is, is somewhere to, to help the, the child to, to exist in the middle ground uh, and not become overtaken by influences from outside and inside. Um, you can say that that could load the intention of education, but the phrase I, I really like is from Klaus Mollenhauer, who, who says we shouldn't forget that once we approach the child as subject, our intentions are always fundamentally broken because they meet another human being. Um, so to think that our intentions can be perfect is only possible if we approach the child as object. Now we can think of this as a theoretical question and it's important and also good fun to, to do good theory, but I think this question still has a political and historical urgency. Um, on the one hand, I, I keep being inspired by this sentence from Adorno, that's the, the, the first demand on education after Auschwitz is that Auschwitz will not happen again, uh, which he said in 1966, and he says, this is so obvious that I don't understand why people keep forgetting this. Um, but there is this other quote from Primo Levi who says the same, but also the opposite. He says, the very fact that Auschwitz has happened means that it can happen again. Um, so we carry this possibility with us. Um, and maybe one question is whether this we in this sentence, uh, yeah, what shall we do with the children, whether this we still has a connection with this history, for example. What is that history? That is a history that shows that objectification of human beings is a real possibility, and actually not a difficult one, but one that is quickly around the corner. In life, in politics, in governance, and in education. Um, and when again I look at, at education, one of my worries is that in contemporary education, it's not just educators who objectify students but students who are asked to objectify themselves. So the, the problem of self-objectification is quite a big problem. I see it in the demand for lifelong learning, where we're constantly being told we, we have to keep learning throughout our lives. Um, I've made the joke that I stopped learning in October 2016 and everything is still going fine. Uh, we see it in theories about self-regulation, that students should regulate themselves, that they should become owners of their own learning. And what we're constantly asking there is, is students to make themselves into an object of themselves. That is versus what I've tried to explore. Education as a weak existential process without any 
guarantees that contains a risk, but that risk is worthwhile. Education not as objectification, but as subjectification. Now, we have language for that, but it's not English. And that has been my frustration over the past 20 years, moving from the Netherlands to Britain, where I found a language in which I couldn't say what I wanted to say. Um, I made a career out of that, so you don't have to feel sorry for me, but nonetheless, that can happen. Um, so what's a beautiful phrase in, in capturing education subjectification? It's the one Dietrich Benner has found in the work of Fichte, Aufforderung zur Selbsttätigkeit. That for me very nicely captures what this uh, approaching the student as subject is. It's an Aufforderung, it's not a production. And it's focusing on Selbsttätigkeit, but we have to be careful there. Selbsttätigkeit doesn't mean be yourself. Again, that is what we hear all the time. Yeah, you can be any one you want to be as long as you have enough money. It's the, the Aufforderung to be a self, to, to be a subject, not an object, you could say. That's an existential question. It's about how we exist. But it's also radically a first-person matter. So I can only be a self for myself. I can try to encourage others, but I can never be a self for others. Um, in my own work, I've tried to find other ways to describe this, arousing a desire in, in other people for wanting to exist as subject. So again, it's about arousing a desire. It's not about telling people or punishing people or rewarding people. And there's a really nice formulation of this in, in a piece by Jacques Rancière where he says, this is actually where we deny students the pleasure of not having to be a subject. And I meet quite a lot of students who actually enjoy just being an object. And they say to me, we've paid 9,000 pounds for the privilege to study at this university, so you will have to do all the work for us. Uh, and to undermine that is hard work. What is education as subjectification? Um, I keep puzzling about that also because very helpfully other people try to figure out what it is and when they give that back to me, I often think, no, that's not entirely it. Um, so that's really, I think, worthwhile in being in conversation about things. So it's not a paradoxical production of the subject. It's also not moral education. So for me, education subjectification is not telling students that they should be responsible. But it's all the ways in which we bring the subjectness of our students into play. And I have an example, but I don't have time for that, but maybe in the discussion. Now, when you ask when does our subjectness come into play, I would say in most cases that is actually when we meet an objectivity. So we shouldn't think that subjectification is about our subjectness or our individuality or our inner self. It is meeting an object, the objectivity of another human being, the objectivity of the planet, the objectivity of a plant, an animal, and so on. So we meet a reality there. Um, and then the question is, what does that meeting do in bringing our, our subjectness into play? And then I would say the first question there is not how we can try to understand what we meet there, which would turn the whole question back into learning. I think there is another question there that is the first question. The question, what is this asking from me? Um, that, you can say, is getting us somewhere uh, in the domain of subjectification because it is the question what is in what I encounter, what is it asking from me, not from everyone or anyone but from me. Um, 
All this means that the logic of education is fundamentally an existential logic, so it keeps coming back to how we try to exist as human beings. And that for me is a very different universe, I would say, than the biosocial, psycho, neurological. And I'm not denying biology. I can if you want to, but for the moment I won't. But I'm hinting at an important difference that existential questions cannot be reduced to biological answers or neurological answers. So I think the biosocial, psycho, neurological never demarcates the field of education because that field is existential. But what I have seen again and again in many countries is that either people look in that direction and say, if we just get the neuroscience right, then we know how to do education. Or that neuroscience just walks in and says, we can take over education because we can sort the problems for you. The dangerous ambition at the horizon there is that if we turn to these domains, they can make education perfect. Um, and you see that in the discourse on equal opportunities, which we can come back to. But I think that's a, a dangerous ambition and a false promise. But there are people who say, give us more time, more money, more research, and then we'll deliver next year or the year after or 10 years from now or never. Is that all we should do with the children? I do know that I have focused a lot in all those books on subjectification, but my answer here is, of course not. There is also the duty we have to the new generation to provide orientation, to help children, young people, to figure out what is this world, where it's coming from. I would say this is the work of socialization, and that's difficult work. Which world do we present? How do we present it? What does it mean? to gain orientation. There is always the risk with socialization that we forget that we have subjects in the room and that socialization becomes strong, one-sided. Telling people how they should be, um, that's the problem I see with character education, with social-emotional learning, resilience, and so on. I think it's also a problem with building, but we can come back to that. And then I think there is a, a third duty, the duty to provide equipment for living, a phrase from Kenneth Burke, and that's the work of qualification. And again, that's important work, but that work can also go wrong if we forget when we do qualification that there are subjects in the room. So in thinking about the, the relationship between these three domains, I still don't know what the best picture is. It starts at the heart somewhere with the subjectification. Without that, we have no education. But it doesn't mean that we don't need socialization and qualification. In some work I did on curriculum, I suggested to call this a flipped curriculum, where we don't say everything begins with qualification and then if we have time, we add a bit more but where we say everything begins with subjectification, but for a subject to be in the world, it needs orientation and it needs to be equipped. How is that expressed in words? That's the tricky one because different languages, traditions, histories and sensitivities play part there. My frustration is that English only has this single word, education. Germanic languages have at least two words, but when I speak to my friends in Germany, some love Bildung and some hate it, some love Erziehung and some hate it. Um, so that's a big mess. Um, so I think the, the challenge is not to say what is the right word, but what are the issues on the table. I've been working with colleagues in Japan who say actually we should speak about Manabi and it's impossible to translate. And in Denmark, I have no idea how your language works. So. The challenge is to focus on the issues that matter. My big concern is this ongoing objectification that I see, even with the best intentions. And the challenge is to keep finding ways for staying in conversation if we believe that there is a point to education. Um, and that is indeed, first of all, a belief. Whether that is true, we don't know. But if we give up on that belief, we should now open the bottles. Thank you.
Yeah, and now it's Lucas. And uh, while Lucas is speaking, I give out a handout. You could just let it pass down there to sheets of paper for my presentation you can use later on, no PowerPoint. So first, Lucas. Thank you. All right, can you hear me? Sounds good? All right. Thank you, Gert. I'm glad to see so many of you have showed up just to hear me speak. It's pretty incredible. No, my name is uh, Lucas Cohn. I'm a PhD student here at the Danish School of Education and uh, kind of being the young one out in this company um, based on the invitation from uh, State I would like to take up the challenge to uh, propose a twist and a shout, which we'll get back to later, since this is, of course, an event that is about twisting, um, and, and respond to this very big and difficult question, is there a point to education? Now, um, I think I'd like to begin by posing a question that, is, that was raised by one of my favorite uh, philosophers of education, Judith Swizza, who sits in London. And she asks in the beginning of her book, um, Anarchy in Education, or Anarchism in Education, she asks what that, well, she says that we're very used or accustomed to thinking about education as something that somehow exists or goes on beyond schools, right? And often education is disappointed, in fact, by schools. But today I'm going to try to argue that in this meeting with objects that I think can occur in many places, there is a second component that I'd like to add to what Gat has been saying, which is the need to also act on the world. And this kind of action, which I will later talk about in relation to the works of Hannah Arendt, this need for action, I think, um, turns around the question of why we need education and instead focuses on, which I will talk about, why we need schools. All right? So I'll begin by uh, just reading up a little quote from a book that I've been editing and translating with my friend Joachim here. This is a book from a Norwegian sociologist, Nils Christi, um, who wrote in 1970 a book called Vis Skolen Ike Fantas, If Schools Didn't Exist, which will come out in English next year on MIT Press. So, I quote, Is it not grotesque that nursing homes and schools, located across the street from each other, toil desperately away in isolation in their mutual and separate endeavors to solve opposite problems? Nursing homes are in need of nursing staff, and schools are in need of meaningful tasks for their students. Why shouldn't class 8A be assigned full responsibility for a large part of the manual work required in the nursing home throughout the year? Why shouldn't class 8B be responsible for doing the daily grocery shopping for the district's elderly residents? Such service tasks require organization, they require coordination. They can be expanded, spill over into other activities, and even become a source of income for the school. Other schools will find other opportunities. They will most likely operate on the margins, a bit on the outskirts of ordinary working life in society. But this is where newcomers, and my point, also education, has always begun. Now, when I discuss this passage with other people, I typically hear the same comment. Sure, it makes theoretical sense to involve kids in a nursing home, this is from Rolling on a Poplay, if some of you know that. Um, and the students, of course, can't just spend their time in nursing homes. They need to learn STEM skills, not how to cook food and how to change diapers. Uselessness, in other words, is the pedagogical premise of usefulness. Without being useless, they won't be able to become more than what was given from wherever they came from in the first place and wherever learning is taking place. This is the promise of education, which corresponds well to the common response to the question of what to do with children and young people. That is, a belief in education as some kind of a sacred process by which the individual emerges as a subject. Philosophers of education often talk about education through the perspective of an intrinsically valuable and somehow conceptually defensible ideal of education that is somehow being distorted or corrupted by contemporary institutional forms. These ideals, as you are probably all familiar with, take many forms. Educating for freedom, against oppression, for sustainable development, etc. Ivan Illich was one of the first, let's see what we have here, one of the first to voice his disappointment in the institutionalization of an educational ideal, but people like John Holt and Paulo Freire follow a similar, similar line of argument. In a text from 1969, Illich presciently describes how, gradually over the course of the 19th and 20th century, the idea grew that schooling was a necessary means of becoming a useful member of society. 
he also says that it is the task of this generation to bury that myth. And he confidently predicts that by the end of this century, what we will now call school will be a historical relic. I feel sure that it will soon be evident that the school is as marginal to education as the witch doctor is to public health. Similarly, Paul Goodman became an advocate of de-schooling, arguing in compulsory miseducation that it is simply a mass superstition that adolescents must continue going to school. Of course, you can hear this kind of rhetoric in a lot of politicians today that would argue in a similar line that schools have failed. Now, what seems common in most of these ideals is a normative interest in the emergence of a particular kind of subject or a particular critical, homogenous, or democratic community through the con conscientization, which would be Paulo Freire's word, uh, of the subject beyond institutionalization. Paulo Freire, for example, in Pedagogy of Freedom, describes the educator's task as helping the students to recognize themselves as the architects of their own cognition process. Like, somewhat like, the categories of subjectification, socialization, and qualification, the notions guiding much scholarship, and especially the more critical strand of educational philosophy, seems engaged in continuing to revise the magic formulas of how to reach this point of what Jacques Rancière calls disidentification, removal from the naturalness of place, which is how he defines subjectification. What these various ideals suggest, I think, is that education can never be reduced to the school. Somehow, education is exactly about the removal from the givenness and objectifying nature of the existing environment. This is why I call these pedagogies of displacement. This is a picture based on Jacques Couture, which is in Jacques Ancia's book. Now, such pedagogies, I would suggest, are characterized by a particular metaphysics or normative ideal that cannot merely settle with the simple hermeneutics of interacting with the surrounding environment, such as the nursing home described above. Many educational ideals allow for or even encourage these displacements by placing a pre-formulated outcome or purpose between things and people, which at the same time reduces the complexity of life to whatever is measurable and tangible within the context of this pre-filtered, pure meeting with the other. Education trumps its own placement, we could say, by insisting that there is somehow always more to be added than what is already there by overlaying our interactions in the present with a sense that a deeper perspective on the world is possible, that it is out there waiting for us to emerge. Now, rather than put forth a model of education that will inherently be disappointed by schools, I propose instead that we should turn the argument on its head. Schools, I suggest, can never be reduced to education, and I think I would blanket this argument with this image and quote from Marston Hartley, which I think is beautiful. Um, his works are right now at Louisiana. Now, following the example of the nursing home that I presented previously, I propose that in answering the question of what to do with children, and also young people, we can find inspiration in the works of anarchist philosopher Colin Ward. In his book, Talking Schools, Colin Ward suggests that we shift our perspectives on schools from the future to the present in order to draw forth the possibilities for social and environmental change that are already present in people and their everyday environments. That was a quote from the book. I believe that there is so much to gain from this kind of intuitive engagement in our surroundings if we allow it to be. And I think this is reflected in the works of people like Lauren Berlant, Sarah Ahmed, Jane Bennett, and Ghassan Haj, and other critical anthropologists that have also engaged in a similar fashion with alternative presence. Now, I think the notion of alternative presence is offered kind of an orientation to the forms of viable co-living that are often covered by the fantasies that keep us dreaming about utopian models of education as a process of addition, rather than a different kind of attention to and resonance with our intuitions already there in the present. But all too often, all children see, if they see it at all, is a sign on their way to school that says nursing home. They rarely enter. To some extent, this discussion of the possibilities that are already lodged in the present, I say would echo John Dewey's claim that many of the problems that still plague education is a result of the, quote, inability to utilize the experiences the child gets outside the school in any free and complete way within the school itself. This is why so many schools continue to emerge and sustain in the form of what the ethnographer Paul Willis has described as separate and segregated ghettos, upholding a veil 
of supposed equality that does nothing but perpetuate the structural inequalities that students already live in. Now, if we focus too much on education as the becoming of a subject beyond her surroundings, my fear is that we risk defending these kinds of benevolent displacements, which is an unlucky political underside to the otherwise wonderful works of people like Jacques Ancière, Jan Marschelein, and also Martin Simons. In the latter's book, which is called In Defense of the School, which I would really recommend, the authors defend the school as a distinct and separate social institution, more as a kind of a concept, which they argue is characterized by a mode of suspension, a notion that not only implies the temporary interruption of past and future time, but also the removal of expectations, requirements, roles, and duties connected to a given space. And that was a quote from the book. Aside from its theoretical attractiveness, and I see that, I have a hard time coming to terms with this notion of suspension. Whatever its supranormative context or content, such idealized suspensions will always contain their own disappointment, failed by the powerful forces of life that draw, that draw children and students back into their worlds, forces that will not allow students to meet the other in the purified and radical way hoped for by many scholars. Yet these forces that pull students back, I would say, do more than just turn the student into an object of his or her environment, learning them more than just orientation. They also allow the student to emerge in a way that does not align with the aspirations of others, but rather with her intuitions to the objects, people, animals, and plants around her. Far from delighting in what makes the school distinct as a conceptual dream, the nursing home example suggests that whatever it is that schools are doing, they will not be good places for children to be if they fail to respond to the conditions of life within the communities where they are situated. Mm -hmm. As the work of people like Gloria Latson-Billing suggests, it does not make sense to articulate the values of any educational practices independently of the social setting in which they are taking place. This is also why I would say, if we want to do progressive educational policy, it's about making progressive housing policy, progressive social policy, progressive economic policy. We can't think it separately. And this brings us back to the issue I raised at the beginning. What then is education if it is not an ideal framing of each person's subjectification? The promotion of schools as a particular form of placement suggests a type of educational thinking that emerges as part of, and not behalf of, the communities of beginners that is a school. Education in this light emerges as an emic and not an etic philosophy emerging from within, a philosophy of co-placement, we might say, which is rather different from seeing one's interaction with the environment as a narrow-minded, simple, hermeneutic interaction. The actions of young and old, older people learning to function as a community first as newcomers, but later as full-fledged parts of society, thus becomes the starting point of educational thinking as a matter of care. Where education is often bound to these pedagogies of displacement, the very ontological status of schools in the model I have proposed forces upon us a different set of activities that shape the purpose and meaning of education from below and not above. Speaking of education from below moves away from the proposed transformation of the subject, but rather towards education as a particular form of learning to live together that emerges in and through communal action. It is a way of worlding that is characterized by always being on the verge of disintegration, always about to dissipate into social life itself, de-schooled by schools that reach into their surroundings. I think this form of learning to live together resonates very closely with people like Hartmut Rosa's concept of resonance or Heron, Hannah Arendt's concept of common action, since both of them refrain from seeking this kind of epistemological homogenization, but rather a form of world relation in which subject and world meet and transform each other. Summing up, I like to think that education via schools can become a space for what Anne-Lise Francois calls recessive action, and I'm guessing this is kind of close to the intentional non-action that Gerd was talking about. By leaving the fantasy of the all-responsible subject of education, Francois describes recessive action as a respite from the rust action of a modernity so bent on bringing about the future that it leaves no time for the taking. We can understand this act of recession as an orientation towards active rest that can be a resource for living on without projecting false futures and pasts into the faux sovereign world of events. This orientation towards resources for living on without the individual subject assuming the central position 
resonates well with the kind of situated, wild, and unpredictable world engagement that people fear when they use education as an excuse to make young people's encounters with their surroundings useless, or at least useless if they don't contribute to learning. Yet the world, I would say, is calling for pedagogies of placement by which we learn the art of world-making in and not despite of plurality. This, I think, is the point of education that we need schools in order to prove. Thank you. Yes, and uh, very soon you get a handout, uh, actually double handout there. And uh, my uh, approach here will be twofold. One is to give my idea of the question here, is there a point to education in the first place? And the next one is to take my role as a critic seriously and then pose Gerd a hell of a lot of questions. And they will be found on page four when you get the handout. Page five will be the reference and then I'll, I'll go on. Is there a point to education in the first place? And the sub-questions were, is mankind in need of education? As learning, teaching, building, or something else? And we had other questions. And of course, my questions, my brief answers to my own questions, or our common questions, we made them together, is of course, yes, there is a point to education. And what could it be? It could be building, critique, practices, übung, training, a lot of things we have to do when we deal with learning processes. At the same time, we deal with how we grasp our uh, way of being in the world, and we incarnate meanings and horizons, and we extend our way of living. But first of all, my question, what is education, must be posed. And there is a beautiful phrase of Nietzsche's where he says, Wer ein Warum zum Leben hat, erträgt fast jedes Wie meaning something like, if you have a why in your life, you can uh, cope with or you can stand every how. And what I think is that uh, the whole educational branch, the educational matrix per se, has been preoccupied with all the hows. How can we enhance? How can we produce? How can we do it better? And so on. But very seldom people ask the why question, why education in the first place. And the question of whatness and whyness of education uh, invites a process ontology, a kind of existential ontology, there we agree, uh, Gerd and I. And from an existential ontological and phenomenological position, education plays an important role in the way that you experience yourself and come to know the world. Come to know the world of meaning, come to know the world of events, come to know the world of history, language, all kind of things you can deal with and think about. And the epistemological and ontological horizons of a human being, they will never be melting together, they will never be reconciled. So I think that there are a lot of authors out there trying to give us epistemological questions, to tough ontological questions, or answers to them, but that will be in vain. So this question will start out being answered, this why education in the first place, by uh, describing an economic matrix for educational planning and then try to transgress it. The basic answer to why we have and what education is, why we have it, seems to be uh, uh, expressed through a kind of a hegemonic and transnational consensus, a kind of a machinery, a kind of supranational narrative of education, where it's said that we only have education to shape competitive workforce and uh, to make it as a condition that the individual can be qualified to fulfill tasks in society and to fit into the societal division of labor. So therefore, education becomes a subject production, typically drawn from institutionalized socialization. And I think we, that's also what we have actually transformed DPU into, this module-driven, kind of ECTS-driven educational management place. But, uh, but within that, we have, of course, limited zones of freedom. Education is centered about the appropriation of knowledge, skills, and competences, but also, of course, in shaping moral and social and other forces of the individual so we can fit into society and be thinking creatures, destined and doomed to be self-governed. Education becomes portrayed as a means to an end, to prepare the workforce to work approximately and hopefully 40 to 45 years full-time at the highest possible weights, aggregate lifetime earnings, and the perception advocated by economists and politicians. And within this capitalism we are living in right now, the purpose of the educational system seems to be to enhance the value of human capital. So, in order to get over that narrative, we have to ask the question, Bildung, 
and uh, like Gert has already declared here, that we have another vocabulary also in Danish, Danelse, Uddannelse. We also have other very good words like didactics. We have erziehung, opdragelse. We have all kind of words that are kind of we forget about when we only speak English. So unlike our English-speaking colleagues as speakers of Germanic languages like Danish and German, we are privileged in our ability to distinguish between uddannelse or dannelse, between Ausbildung and Bildung, and to distinctly make it a kind of a advocation that uh, the education is linked to a lot of other concepts like culture, edification, to upbringing, to all kind of way that you mirror yourself in ideals and perfectionalize the way you're living, and maybe even transgress it now and then. Bearing that distinction in mind that we have to have a much richer vocabulary than just use the educational one and connect that to economy, we have to open for a distinctive ontology of how we are hemiotic and interpretative beings, that we are themselves already, ourselves already, inheriting all kind of, of uh, traces from the past and invitations to come to learn and study books, but at the same time also to give our own individual and social interpretations of the text and the events in which we are embedded. Despite uh, what, what might sound like a, a, a reductionism undertaking here, we have could take that uh, say that uh, education is first and foremost an, a kind of an extended experiences horizons in which we do real exp experiences, which you also cannot say in English. That's actually erfaring, erfaring. That's not just uh, reducible to experience. So that you come to shape what can become a kind of a dignified way of being in the world. And if we view students' education activity from a processual, existential philological perspective, we see not the student as an empty vessel, wanted to be filled with a given curriculum in a tabula rasa situation, but more or less a, a, a student that's kind of creating him or herself as a living and subject that is a kind of an enigma to it, his or herself. So ideally for me, education happens through self-transcending conquest of new areas of knowledge and also new interpretations of the past in which we could build up mankind to become a surprise to itself and maybe to invent new ways of living. In that way, we come to train our critical capacity and critical thinking must be a part of uh, educational matters and not the least the way in which we train our intellect, our way of reasoning, invent new languages and also our always very interested in criticizing linguistic horizons in which we are already embedded and in which we are maybe the false can sneak in. In Danish and German horizons, we know an example that very, very critical words like learning, which was once maybe connected to a kind of an idea from the bottom that you could make your own curriculum, make your own problem definition, whatever. Then learning concepts because a part of the governance logic, so suddenly you end up with learning goals and uh, learning uh, horizons and learning uh, in invitational standards for every kind of thing. So instead of just losing learning as a kind of a neutral term, you have to know the history of the words, the Begriffsgeschichte in German. In that way, we can maybe also still maintain the questions of whyness and uh, not just let them be answered by howness questions. And the why becomes paralyzed, trapped within the attempts to meet the demands of the hour of the, of the house, of the honor of the house. And our times is uh, therefore charged with oblivion and patience. So if we try to pose the question, what is education and why education in the first place, maybe you could have two tentative anticipatory answers to these questions, these why questions. One could be that ideally education is its own justification. Uh, it's uh, good to come to know something, to experience and interpret the world, and to come to know more than you knew if you were not being going through an educational process. It's a process in which you come to uh, defining and understanding and grasping and uh, interpreting what is. Education could be its own justification. Education is also education and not something else that can be reduced to anything other by itself. And therefore there could be a kind of an autotelic dimension of education if it's worth its name. So the question why and why and how education should still maintain that there are difference between the kind of technical answers and then profound philosophical and existential ways of asking the questions in order to get over this educational matrix. But when we then come to the 
offer that we have been given from GET through the years, and I read many and, and we're reviewing many of GET books through the years, and we also made a book here called Uddannelse for en menneskelig fremtid, GET Biestas pædagogiske tænkning, where we tried to debate with, with GERT two years ago. Then I have kind of uh, summarized my different critical uh, invitation to GERT now in six points that I will hope we could discuss after the break. And the first uh, question is here, you find page four, you can follow them. It seemed to me that we also had it before in guest presentation that this uh, neuro, psycho, socio, whatever matrix couldn't understand education. And there is socio also in it. So my question is, when I read Gerd, there's no real sociological uh, approach to society, a big society concept or anything like uh, on a macro scale. How do actually Gerd consider this type of capitalism? Is, are we living in a kind of a... Of a Cognitive capitalism, are we living in a, a world of many capitalisms, or don't we need a society concept at all, at a kind of a macro level? How to grasp and conceptualize transformation of contemporary capitalism? Biesta primarily writes about and criticizes, and he does it with a right approach and a lot of good arguments, but he criticizes neoliberalism, new public management, but it's basically the political forms he's addressing in his critique. Is, is it actually too boring to be interested in structures? Do you find economic and social structures of power uh, more or less in vain to deal with or not that interesting, uh, primarily criticized on political level? So that was the first question. And then uh, you already warmed up a little bit before here. All of us know, all of the students you have here in this room and the colleagues you have here know your triangular division between qualification, socialization and subjectification. And um, I wonder if it's possible uh, to understand the whole task of education within that triangular logic. I miss the substantial dimensions of building in qualification, like the content, the knowledge, the thinking, the poetry, the art, the philosophy. And um, the subjects, as a, as a the fauli subject, the subject, and fane, as a, the, the real subjects as world openers, the epithemic no moments of becoming wiser in contact with classics in contact with real good questions. And that cannot be only be overwhelmed by or be embedded in a, in a concept like qualification. And still it's not reducible to subjectification or socialization. Do you miss a fourth uh, thing in your triangular approach? And do you disagree with Thomas C. and me and other people who view building as a kind of art of decentering, where the decentering also comes from the context to stuff and matter and kind of things out there? That's coming to you from the exterior, but also coming through the, the thing we have inherited from culture, which is much more than qualification, socialization, and subjectification. And then the third open question I'd like to pose you, and I know that Lucas has some of the same questions that we have to be dealt with this, dealing with this morning, but I was not present in the PhD seminar. But basically, how do you understand hermeneutics? Because when we read your books, and uh, especially the book where you were uh, rediscovery of teaching, but also actually in the other books, we find that you tend to mean that hermeneutic is subject-oriented and mind-centered constructivism is at least related to it. And you miss in that way, I see, the obvious opportunity to see what, in example, Gadamer writes, where he talks about that we are embedded in an open play, das Spiel, it's what we spilled with us. We have spilled, spilled, in Danish. That we are not the center of an aesthetic or a kind of a philosophical experience, but it comes to us through an open invitation. So instead of looking at it as a subject-centered, you could say that it's actually transgressing the subject. Gadamer's whole philosophy was a critique of the individual consciousness as the focus of philosophy. So how do you see hermeneutics after all? Um, I, do you see, as I see it here, we could see Bildung as a double dialectic of inheriting and transgressing the horizon of understanding, which you have brought up, and the same inhaling and interpreting science of life and the power of the events in an open horizon, instead of seeing it as subject-centered. But that's something we really like to discuss with you, we would look forward to that. Then, uh, when I read your work, uh, I know you're dealing with vulnerability of the individual body, that we have the knowledge that we're going to die, the mortality of being and all that, but I miss a kind of a body-philological dimension of your work about being in the world. 
you seem to favor more the spiritual and existential religious dimensions, and they are worth considering, of course, but it's, they are not written from a kind of a bodily, phenomenological, incarnated, situated experience approach. Could it be because you're inspired by Levinas' view of transcendence and you think that imminence is not enough? Or maybe you could also say that it, the incarnated existential ontology is not your start point. It might be a start point for me and for Merleau Ponty, for Oliver Kirkeby here in Denmark, for Thomas Fuchs from Heidelberg and Hannah de Jäger and all these people that I study. But it's basically not really the way you are thinking. So how do you view this? And then there are two more questions. Um, I really favor a French philosopher called Jean-Luc Nancy. He wrote a book translated in English called Being Singular Plural. And if you read that text, it's at least as smart as Gertz. Because if he write a book called Obstinate Education, that can be an adjective, meaning that education is itself obstinacy. Also, obstinacy can stride uddannelse. But it could also be read as an imperative verb form saying, make education obstinacy. Lad uddannelse være obstinacy. Så so, so man kan bruge det både som et verb og et adjektiv. And at the same time, this guy, Jean-Luc Nancy, when he, when he writes a book, he's born in 1940, called Being Singular Plural, So if you read being as a verb or you singular plural, you can, you can, skal du være mangfoldig på en singular måde, skal du være singular på en plural måde, altså, skal det, should it be read as a verb or as an adjective? How do you transmit the meaning between the three words? He plays with that. And in that book, Jean-Luc Nancy, he writes about the articulation of the we, l'articulation de nous. And when he connect that uh, to a kind of a hope for a new beginning, and instead of parties or nations or unions, we could invent new ways of being together. Could that be a political rediscovery of a socialization dimension that we could talk about how do we invent new ways of building up we's, also new ways of we are in the world? And could that be related to your subjectification logic in a way that we could see open possible new beginnings in an iron sense, that we connect a new we logic to a new subjectification existential approach, or how do you actually view the relationship between existential approach and political openness for new we's? I hope you understand that. Then you seem, and that was a this big uh, disturbance, or at least a, 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 a kind of a puzzle to me to understand you, because as you know, uh, well, Gerd is many places in the world, and he's also doing very many PhD courses. So in some of his books, he's writing about how he trains students to live with concepts. I actually love that. For a long time, you, you tend to go walk around with Hegel, and you say, what do I think about the concept of the Geist, or spirit? And then you, can't, you live with that for a long time, instead of coming with an early interpretation. And too, too fastly going, well, I know what the spirit is. I can check the dictionary. So you say, how do you train people to come to live with a concept for a longer time? So you actually disfavor constructivism. You think that people end up in a kind of a voluntary subject-oriented constructivism in many Danish or, or many European universities, maybe. So you, fa you favor freedom as the most important dimension of education. It's actually the first page in obstinate education. It is a kind of a hymn to freedom. But at the same time, it's definitely not the freedom for the students to construe or construct the world. Uh, so instead, you tell them to live with concept and get them under their skin. But um, how do we navigate in order not to become either voluntary social constructivist or fixated conservative thinker for a, a mandatory given interpretation that was for in the first place? But if you live too long with other people's concepts, then you also may me take over their interpretation of the concept, or maybe you are too much paying tribute to Hegel as honoring him as a big god, profane god. So how do you train people to become critical? Uh, maybe not social constructivistic, but at least critical and independent thinkers, if you only live with concepts, like there's something that you like, kiss and caress, and you're not too critical against them. How do you train yourself to go beyond constructivism and conservatism? And that is basically a good question, I think, because it's also echoing a guy I, I love a lot called Richard Bernstein. He wrote a book a very long time ago in 83 called Beyond Objectivism and Relativism. And that was a book about uh, hermeneutics. 
And uh, I would also, in that way, say that was radical hermeneutics, Caputo and so. How do we relate that? Because it could be that we could relate to hermeneutics in a very critical way, combine it to critical theory and phenomenology. That's at least what I'm trying to. So that we not just buy a kind of a constructivist prose, but at the same time, we think that people can think independently and create new interpretation that could be then for other people, their hermeneutical background for their new interpretation and so on eternally. So that was basically, well, exactly right on time, 401 break, tea, coffee, and then uh, we go on. <laughs>